All right, if you guys will turn back in your Bibles to the book of Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, we are looking at our third observation of the opening chapter of what we call the Romans Road for the Pilgrim's Progress. And we are at a portion of Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, period, is as I have described before, probably one of the most controversial passages in all scripture, particularly in the 21st century. The 20th century had its problems, but largely in the 21st century, Romans chapter 1 is extremely problematic for the world that you and I live in because it, it raises a lens and it creates an evaluation that is directly opposed to our presentation as human beings on the planet today. This is something we will look at more fully um, next week. Today, we want to kind of build a frame around the verses that we're dealing with today, a frame around what we have understood is the emergent uh, objective of the Apostle Paul, having been confident in his assertion of the gospel's power. You guys remember last week what he said plainly to the Romans is, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel. And that, that declaration was coming out of what we learned the week before of his exaltation of the risen Christ. I told you before, because Christ has risen, the gospel is not an invitation. It's a celebratory summons. The gospel is not an invitation. It's a celebratory summons. When somebody invites you somewhere and you say, excuse me, I can't make it today. There are no consequences for that. Try saying that to God. My point is the gospel is not an invitation. It is a celebratory summons. It is a joyful declaration of the work of Christ on the behalf of sinners so that God can bring you into fellowship with him on the grounds of what we're going to be talking about today. And that is God's righteousness. It's a celebratory summons. And what Paul said in verse four was that Jesus Christ's resurrection from the dead proved that he was the son of the living God. You're going to hear that today in a glorious confession of faith by several sisters today, what it means to confess Christ in the waters of baptism. The apostle, therefore, not only is declaring the exaltation of Christ via the gospel, he explains the gospel in terms of its ability to save men and women and bring them into a line of faith. You heard it in Romans chapter one, verse 16 and 17. From faith to faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live how? By faith. That is a replication of gospel principles working in the lives of men and women across the generations. For the last 2,000 years, we've seen it replicated. We're going to see it again by uh, emblem today, by topology, by, by ceremony today. But if God has saved you, you are part of that replication. A grand reality has occurred in your soul. You have become a new creature. God has lifted you up out of the morass of this crazy stuff going on in this world, and he's put you on his team. And he's called you to replicate what Jesus did in the lives of other men and women from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by what? Faith. 
Right. So he exalts Christ. He explains the gospel and the gospel becomes the grounds now of his argument for God's righteous assessment on the human race. The gospel is an argument. Look at verse 17 again as we get ready to look at three points today. All I'm going to do is lay a foundation, and next week we're going to really get into the minutia of this controversial text. For therein, therein what? The gospel. The gospel. The gospel has contained in it God's righteous character, God's righteous work, and God's righteous assessment upon his creatures. The gospel explains why things are the way they are. The gospel explains why God does what he does. And if you can hear that the gospel is an argument, may I say this? It's because human beings such as you and I argue with God every day about him being God. So God's arguing back. As he has a right to do, he figures since you're going to bring him to trial, he'll bring you to trial too. Sue me in court, I'll sue you back. And that's what God is doing. I want you to capture that. The Apostle Paul is now launching into his argument, and I want you to really understand the context. This is an argument that's going to run all the way through the book of Romans. The gospel is an argument that God is righteous in everything he does. That's what this is. And I want you to capture it. I want you to capture what we are are dealing with today. Notice it says it is the righteousness of God that is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Can you imagine that? I shouldn't stay on this point that long. Can you imagine if you get the gospel right in your conception, in your understanding, if you are competent enough to communicate the gospel accurately Therein is God's righteous character made known. It would assert then, if you don't get the gospel right, you don't get God's character right. And if you don't get God's character right, you have engaged in idolatry at the rhetorical level. The gospel explains God properly. It is incumbent upon us then to get the gospel right. Would you agree? In fact, Paul said it in Galatians 1, if you get the gospel wrong, you're under a curse. That's how serious it is. And so what he's doing now is he's adding now a a, a launch into a, a panoply of arguments that would justify who God is in his world. And I want us to look at three fundamental points here. Notice what he says in verse 18. I think you're with me now. Notice what it says, for the wrath of God. Do you see that? Is presently being revealed. For the wrath of God is presently being revealed. That's the verb form that it's in. It's not that it has been revealed. It's that there is an ongoing revelation of God's wrath being revealed from where? From heaven. Stay with me. I want you to get this. It's not only being revealed from heaven, which is its origin, but it came down to us in the words of the prophet in the totality of scripture by which we have that revelation of God's wrath. Did that come home? Somebody say amen if it came home. Because what I want you to be able to do with me, I said I wasn't going to do a whole lot of exegesis or exposition, but it's important for you to know that simply because Paul said 
that it's revealed from heaven. He's not saying that it's merely in heaven. He's saying it's from heaven. A man can receive nothing except to be given to him from where? You and I, in a real sense, are from heaven. God, who is in heaven, created everything by Jesus Christ. There's not a living soul in the room that didn't have its origin in the mind of God. Am I making some sense now? It's important for you to know, and you have to know that you're going back there in a minute and have to answer to the God that made you. That's what our elder was hitting at. He owns everything. He created everything for his own glory. And you and I will have to meet him on that day. And so that the wrath of God is presently being revealed from heaven. I hope to just give you a tidbit of it today, just a tidbit. And as soon as we do, you're going to go, aha, that's what the wrath of God looks like. It certainly is, therefore, then being revealed. And so why is this happening? What is what is Paul saying for the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness? What does that mean? The wrath is coming against a behavior on the part of humanity towards God. This here is the opening argument of God's lawyer apostle on the behalf of God, saying that humanity is entangled in a debate. And God is bringing forth a precise assessment of their behavior and their suffering from it. Notice what it says. For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Y'all know what that is. And unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Do you see that? There's a wrestling match going on. Heaven has opened up, poured out its counsel. Mankind has rejected it. And guess what they're doing? Wrestling to keep the revelation from being made known. Point number one in our outline. They know that God is righteous in his wrath. They know that God is righteous in his wrath. I hope I can help a few believers this year in 2024 get their theology right because we're not doing good. We hear, but we don't hear. So I want to see if we can anchor some realities down today. Can we, can we see if we can do that? See, now when, when, when the text tells us they know, this is exactly what Paul explained. Look over at verse 19. Here's what he says in verse 19. Uh, Romans 1:19. because that which may be what? Known of God. Where is it? Manifested in them. That which may be known of God is manifested in them. And I'll massage the grammar just to help you in a little bit more of what we call exegetical accuracy. The reality of who God is, is made known among us as human beings and is made known in us as human beings. Two important categories. Are you following me? It's made known among us because we are an aggregate expression of who God is, having created us in his image. It's made known among us because the nations of the world have plotted together to try to create a concoction of an idea about who God is contrary to what God has said. And so when you see somebody building a supposition, building an argument, building a thesis about something, no matter how wrong that thesis is, you can know they actually believe in that thesis. Mankind knows there's a God. When you go around all day long going, oh, God, even though you call yourself an agnostic or an atheist, you know God. 
When you go around every day arguing to tear him down and to shut him up and to confine him and distort his character, you know God. You're wrestling with him. You're wrestling with him. That's all I'm saying. And when you go through the archives of history, what you and I know by the archives of history is that human beings spend most of their deep secret thoughts and aspirations trying to divest themselves of the reality of a holy God. And this is what's going on in our text. Let me see if I can work through our three points on our first, our first main point. They know that God is righteous in his what? In his wrath. They know he's righteous in his wrath. Subpoint A, the cosmos argument. The cosmos argument. This is a theological term that starts again in verse 18 of our text where it says the wrath of God is revealed from where? From heaven. And notice what it says over in verse 19 there, uh, verse 20. For the invisible things of who? God from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made even his eternal power in Godhead, so that they are unapologetically guilty of what they know. Notice what Paul is doing. He's using the argument of the cosmos, of the universe, of the galaxy, of the sun, moon, and stars, of the seasons, of the geographical wisdom of the world, of humanity's uh, actions from the time of creation up to now. What Paul is saying is the heavens everywhere are talking about God. Are y'all keeping up with me? I mean, I could write a whole line of Bible verses, but I do want to get to baptisms this day. You should know your Bible. You should know that everything God creates, he creates for his glory. And therefore it serves as a witness. Like you and I are known not just by our personal name, our nomenclature, because my name is Jesse, as you guys know, and there are millions of Jesses in the world, particularly the Middle East, okay? Because this is a Hebraic expression. Yesi is a Hebraic expression. Like many of us who are Christian and got Christian names, it's Hebraic, okay? Uh, Just like Jesse, the father of who? David, Dawid, right? We got all this going on among us, But I'm really only one Jesse. God made one PJ. He didn't make two. Now, you would never know that if you didn't know me. If you know my name but don't know who I am and my person, you don't know me. And a lot of people know God in name but don't know him in person and don't know him in relationship, and therefore they don't know him. And I'm simply saying to you that you and I want to think deeply because there's an argument not only against God in my world, there's an argument against his word. Well, that makes sense because if God speaks and he does and he created us in his image and we speak, do we not? When people listen to us, they can tell whether we are full of it or whether or not we are men and women of integrity. When people listen to us, they can tell whether or not we have a link to the truth or we're operating out of postmodern, irrational gobbledygook. When they listen to us, that's an additional revelation that either affirms who we are or it contradicts who we are. Keeping up with me. And so when a person takes those two pieces of information, my name and what I say, what I say, and they realize that what I am saying is contradicting what I am affirming who I am, then they know I'm a liar. But God is true. And when he says what he says, it's a reflection of his character and nature And men don't like what God says because it brings them closer to a knowledge of the God that they wrestle with every day. It makes sense to me, therefore, that they want to get rid of the word of God. 
That is a major component of what we are dealing with today in terms of suppression of the truth. Y'all keeping up with me? Let me see if I can keep moving. I want you to get. Now, remember, we're just in the argument stages of the lawyer, the Apostle Paul. We're in the argument stage. This is opening argument. This is first round of about two or three discovery scenarios by which Paul will argue with humanity on God's behalf to let everybody know that was God, that God was right in his judgment. Y'all keeping up? All right. It's important for you to know this for the invisible things of the creation of the world. What that means is the things that you and I don't see. We call this in Greek grammar the stoike, the rudimental fundamentals that are the hidden things that are the foundation and substratum of everything that's made. Almost everything that is made is made by something that cannot be seen. Did y'all understand what I just stated? See, just those of you with a little knowledge of biology, a little knowledge of science knows that the rudiments of the made things are things that are not seen. Even if you were to take a chair like you're sitting in and you break it down to its myriad of component parts, when you separate them, you can't see how they work together until they come together into a unit of composite called a manifestation or an expression. Am I making sense? And if you're ignorant in terms of just basic materialism in the area of science, you're going to be ignorant of the chair that you're sitting on. How much more so are we ignorant about the God that made us? We want to go go around saying God don't exist. When you're the most vivid evidence that God exists on the universe. You are. Everything else can be obliterated and they just leave you. You are the pinnacle of God's creation manifested. God didn't say anything to any other creature but you. Let us make man in our image and in our likeness. And thus we are in argument against ourselves when we say there is no God. I know I I, I do need to go on because we can come back here next time. But notice what he says. The things that are seen are made by the things that are not seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. So now we're getting into what we call the greatness of God's character, his eternal power, his eternal power. Two terms there, everlasting, from everlasting to everlasting. It infers that his power has always existed from time immemorial. Y'all got that? His eternal power. It didn't begin at a time. He has eternal power. And if he has eternal power from the past, he has eternal power in the future. We call him omnipotent. He's the omnipotent God. And guess where you discover that? When you look very carefully into the cosmos. The cosmos preaches to you of the eternal power of God. Scientists know that there is no way to plumb the depths of the universe. It has an endless expansion that has to be defined as the olam of the olam, the everlasting to everlasting from one vanishing point. That vanishing point has to do with our inability to grasp it at the beginning to the other vanishing point, meaning our inability to follow God to the other end of his creation. We can't because we're creatures. I'm making some sense, am I not? By the time we get halfway out of galaxy one, we're wearied and tired. It's just go on, God. You go, you go, you, you go. You, you, I believe you now. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. 
You created everything for your glory and for your honor were they made so that they are what? So that they are without excuse. Talking about you and me. The word there without excuse is one long Greek word, unapologetic. See, apologetics is what we do who are serious Christians. When we stand for God on the basis of his word and tell men and women what's right, we're defending the honor of God's word. Do you hear me? Do you hear me? Right. So the Bible is a serious mechanism and instrumental means and material witness of the reality of God. And so we, we, we stand on God's word and we tell men and women, this is what God said. And we're here to defend its claims. And that's what the Christian is called to be. Not everyone has that gift, but you must never succumb to a kind of therapeutical emotionalism out of your pastors and teachers when the essence of your eternal destiny stands on objective reality and truth claims that are transcendent. It requires someone who is willing to wrestle in those areas. Am I making sense? And I'll tell you about that when we get down to their argument, because this is how they argue against God. We can just get rid of God whenever we want. I'm still on the point number one. The cosmos is God's argument. I love the way Paul put it in Acts chapter 14, verse 14, verse uh, 14 through 18. Listen to how Paul argues at Miletus among some pagans who, even though they don't have Torah and even though they don't know the Bible, they still believe in gods. And they had asserted that Paul and Silas were gods and they were ready to worship them as gods. That goes to show you they know intrinsically that there is a God who made us in its image as they stated. The gods have come down to us in the fashion of men. And they're not even reading the Bible. Where did that come from? We'll see that in a moment under our second argument. Listen to these words, which uh, Acts chapter 14, verse 14, which when the apostles and Paul had heard them wanting to worship them, they rent their clothes and ran in among the people crying out. Now, see, if we were dealing with uh, a contemporary Christian church and folks wanted to worship them, they pull out the offering baskets. That'll come home in a minute. (laughs) Number 15 and saying, sirs, why do you these things? We also are men of like passion with you. You know what Paul just says? Hey, we're sinners just like you guys. We're servants of God, but we're no different than you. See it? See the difference between true servants of God and false servants of God? False servants of God definitely want to be worshipped as God. Listen to it. We are also men of like passion and preach unto you that you should turn from these vanities unto the living God. That is the essence of what we call the imperatival emphasis of the gospel. The imperatival emphasis of the gospel is we are idolaters and we need to turn from our idolatry and worship the one true and living God. Y'all don't hear that today because you're not hearing the gospel today. Now, notice what he says, which made heaven and earth and the sea and all that therein is. What is Paul doing now? Apologetically, he's arguing from a cosmological position, is he not? He's speaking to the pagan who doesn't know the Bible. He doesn't know Torah. He doesn't know Christ, but he know God. He knows God through the heavens. So Paul is taking the book of heaven and showing them that God created all this. Him alone you should worship. This is called apologetics, okay? Verse 16. Notice what he says. 
Uh, verse 16, do we do just verse 16? Thank you. Who in time past suffered all nations to walk in their own ways. I should not go here, but the idea is this. As long as man, mankind was on the earth prior to the coming of Christ, God was patient with their rebellion. It didn't mean he approved of it. It just meant he was patient. He was still saving his people and letting folk act the fool. In my opinion, God is even more patient today. Because by the time I'm done, the kind of crazy stuff we do in the day, I wish I was living back in the pagan days. I think God's more patient today. Listen, nevertheless, he left himself not without a what? Nevertheless, he left not himself without a witness. There it is. There it is. Everywhere in the world, God leaves a witness. That's the argument I want you to get. See, when people say, I didn't know. No, you did. You suppressed it. We're going to talk about that. Everywhere that God creates, he leaves himself with a witness. Now, you can believe the world. You can believe the archaeologists. You can believe the scientists. You can believe the historians. I believe God. I believe wherever God created human beings, he insignated them with a witness of the reality of who he is. You have to work through the manure of all of their arguments, but it will show up. God was there and he told them who he was. All right. So now notice what it goes on to say. Nevertheless, he left not himself without a witness in that he did what? I love this. One of God's arguments against humanity's rebellion and carping argument is that God is good. As God's argument. I, I, I wish I could get a team of apologists joining me today. See, because God is good. Is he good? Tell it. God is good. Right, right. Now, it's important for you to be able to do that because, you know, if you're a Christian, you should have a proper lens on and you should at least be able to see the good things of God. Because I understand we're dealing with all kinds of ugly, are we not? But you, you have to see the beautiful. You have to see the exquisite. You have to see the wisdom. You have to see the extraordinary hand of a good and sovereign God. You have to believe like David did. The earth is full of the mercy of God. And see, this is where worshipers can get along in the midst of a storm. We know the storm here is for all kinds of reasons. But as Pilgrim taught us, there are steps in the water. That if you put your foot on the steps in the water, you'll be able to get through the storms. Because all of the promises of God are yes and amen to the glory of God, the Father in Jesus Christ by us. How are they walking on water in the midst of the storm? They've got their eyes on the promises of God. And we say God is good, even though everything around me is falling apart. To quote my elder again, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. The argument is from the goodness of God. Notice what he goes on. He gave us rain, heavens, fruitful fields, filling our hearts with food and what? The, the pagan cannot argue against that. They party more than we do. I'm getting ready to talk about that here in a minute. So their partying is an evidence of God's goodness. Yeah, living for the weekend had a theological connotation to it. I'm just trying to help you, okay? You know, you, you do your, see, it's theology, isn't it? Six days shall a man labor, on the seventh day let him rest, right? They don't know God from the man on the moon, but they go, thank God it's what? There it is. 
verse 18, verse 18. See, God is all in the heart of every human being, whether he wants to admit it or not. And with these things, scarcely restrained the people that they had not done sacrifice unto them. So Paul is arguing, as we're arguing, that we know that God exists. The second argument is what we call the conscious argument. Look at Romans chapter 2. Verse 14 through 16. Again, this becomes sticky theology with very ungrounded believers. I wish they were better at their theology. I wish Christians were because a lot of the saints died throughout the last thousand years for us to have a Bible and us to have freedom and us to have faith. They died standing on the things we're talking about today. The average Christian is not even willing to fight for these things, at least at the intellectual and rhetorical level. Listen to what he says. For when the Gentiles which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law. These having not the law are a law what? And all Paul is saying as we get to Romans 5, we'll make it plain. They didn't have an event called Sinai where God explicitly spoke from heaven and then wrote his Ten Commandments on two stone tables and then gave it to them in a code called the Pentateuch with 613 commandments to boot. As they would argue, mankind has a fundamental knowledge of God written in his heart. Did that make some sense? In other words, and, and we, we would argue in, in, in the uh, Hebrew camp that that is what is called the Noahic law. But nevertheless, we believe that abounds too. In our hearts, we know right and wrong. In our hearts, we know there's a line of demarcation called good and evil. Now, it's marred by a lot of crazy stuff. It's marred by a lot of crazy stuff like drugs and marijuana and, and cocaine and heroin and alcohol and getting beat and, and getting left and being traumatized. Y'all keeping up with me? Now, it's marred to a certain extent. You can, be, you can be marred significantly in your mind and in your heart to where you have a hard time understanding the line of demarcation. These are sociopathic traumas. Y'all know what I'm talking about, right? Psychopathic traumas, circumstantial environmental traumas. So we have to wrestle with the reality that some of us are more sensible around the area of morals and ethics than other people. But it doesn't mean that they don't have it in the deep recesses of their conscience. They all do. They all do. And I'm going to share with you here in a moment that the goal of the enemy is to beat you down to the extent that you can't find that moral compass in your soul. But it's there from birth. Okay, verse 15. Notice what he says. Romans 2.15. Notice what he says. Which showed the work of the law written where? In their hearts. And their what? Also bearing witness and their thoughts, the meanwhile, either accusing of wrong or excusing, defending what's right. So mankind is constantly arguing right and wrong, are they not? I mean, our court systems are filled with it. Our judicial system, our government, our, our whole way of communication is around right and wrongs. They are around moral ethical issues, around good and evil. This is what we deal with all the time, ladies and gentlemen. This is what we deal with all the time. Why is mankind so, so enamored by this? Because God wrote his law, embedded the moral compass of right and wrong on his heart, mind, and conscience. You know what it says? The heart, mind, and conscience. That's amazing, isn't it? That means in reality, every one of us in this room and all watching and everything, we are all wrestling with the parameters of right and wrong. You can't get away from it. You can't get away from it. This is why the conscience will be brought up on the last day to testify against you. Because your conscience is kind of like um, Google and Facebook 
and Twitter and all of those programs that's taking all your data. I'm not there yet, but you know I'm going there. We're going to pick this up next week. Your conscience is holding all the data. And God's going to run that program back on the last day and say, now, see, see, see. And you can do like 48 hours all you want when the camera's looking at you and you say, that ain't me. I didn't do that. It ain't going to work in that day. So the argument that Paul raises is the cosmos argument, the conscious argument. I might say this to just give you a little bit of something here. If you can't help men and women admit that there's one true and living God who transcends everything that made, that's made because the creature doesn't make itself. That's such a flawed, logical, illogical argument. You don't even need to start down that path. The notion that some things come from nothing cannot be rationally understood or embraced. It is the epitome of contradiction. Are you hearing me? And we are certainly not calling God nothing. Something created everything. Out of nothing he created it. His own divine fiat. So we have the cosmos argument, we have the conscious argument, and one more, we have what is called the cross argument. Are you keeping up with me? And this is Paul's strategic, brilliant argument going to Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Romans 3, verse 20. This, I'm actually laying out the linear ar- argument of Paul going all the way up to Romans chapter 7, but I'm just giving you a tidbit for today. Paul was brilliant. The Holy Spirit worked in him mightily. His arguments are succinct. They are syllogistically impeccable. They cannot really truly be argued against because it's the Spirit of God laying out argument about reality according to God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no no flesh be justified in God's sight. You guys got that? For by the law is the what? It's the knowledge of sin. So what God does is he comes along and he says, watch this now. Of all the trees of the garden, you may eat freely. But that one tree over there, leave it alone. In the day you eat of that tree, you shall what? That's right. That's called the knowledge of sin. That's called the knowledge of sin. The knowledge of sin is wherever God puts a prohibition and tells you not to transgress. Sin is transgression against God's law. Where there is no transgression, there is no sin. So what God does is he puts down limits and he tells you don't cross them. And when you and I cross them, we have committed what? Sin. And there are what for sin? Consequences. The wages of sin is what? That's Paul's argument. And here he's saying that the law has come in the Old Testament through Torah, the Pentateuch and the Tanah, as we have it. The law has been brought to us in terms of humanity, hearing it through faithful prophets of the Jews in the diaspora. And they affirm the law written in the hearts of human beings across the planet. It would be like you already know the Ten Commandments, but then I read them from the book of Deuteronomy and you go, oh, I already know that. Did that make some sense? Because you already have that law in your heart. I'm just giving it to you in the code. And I can explain it more fully in the code, but I don't need to explain what you already intuitively agree with because you're functioning out of that code from your heart. Now it's coming as a second witness against you. Am I making some sense? This is often why people don't like for you to share the word of God with them because it comes in what is called the by and by as a second witness over against the first witness that's already in them. That's why you got to be real careful with folk when you start going to quoting Bible verses. Be very careful. Be very careful when you go quoting Bible verses 
because the sword is already in them thrusting through and you can push it down harder than they're going to scream and do something to you. Okay, so be very careful. You who love to quote the Bible, be very careful when you're dealing with people because they're already wrestling with the word of God in their own heart. I'm not saying don't do it. I'm saying be very careful when you do it. Listen to what Paul goes on to say under our third point here over in verse 21 and 22. I want to walk this through. Here's his argument so I can close. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is what? Here's what he's about to argue. God, who created the heavens and the earth, gave man a law. That law started in the garden when he said, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. From that point on, God has been putting up stop signs and road bumps all the way to Mount Sinai. And then in Mount Sinai, he gave us a fuller code, did he not? And then we kept rolling as human beings with that code coming from faithful prophets and preachers. And then he got us to Jesus day. What do we know about that era? Jesus is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes. Now the law of God from heaven is embodied in a person and his name is Jesus. Jesus is the sum total of God's righteousness personified. Am I making sense? He is the word made flesh dwelling among us. He is the living word of God. Everything in scripture testifies to him. And when you get to Jesus, you come to the end of the Torah in terms of obedience to merit righteousness with God. And so this is who, we, who those of us who are believers, who are Christians, we, we argue vigorously that you cannot be saved by the works of the law. And if you try, you have rejected God's commendation of his own son, who is the epitome of righteousness. Remember, Paul's argument is about God being righteous. God is righteous in his assessment through creation of our guilt and crime. He's righteous in telling us in Romans chapter three, verse 23, it'll come up in a second. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Is he righteous? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Is he righteous when he says the wages of sin is death? So we've gone from a righteous assessment to the ruin of humanity. God is righteous. Man is ruined. Who's going to solve that problem? Not you. The same one who assessed that you and I are ruined has to remedy the problem through the redemption that's in Jesus Christ. Look at the next verse. It lays it out very clearly. Verse 24. We're going to walk through two verses and move on to our second point. Listen to what he says. You and I who are freely justified by God's grace through the what? Through the what? Through the what? Redemption is always the price paid by blood to put away your sins so that God can justify you on the grounds of righteousness without violating his holy law. If God declares you righteous, it's because somebody else paid the penalty called redemption to deliver your soul out of condemnation and declare you just. This is what I meant by the celebratory uh, summons, by the way. Right? What a great, what a, what, when that subpoena comes to you, and tells you you're headed to hell, Christ paid the price, you can be set free by faith in him. Is that not a celebratory summons? Is that not a celebratory summons? 
You're hearing the gospel right now if you've never heard it before. You are hearing the gospel. The gospel is not about you, it's about God. The gospel is not about how you feel, it's about what Christ did. The gospel is not about what God can do for you or what you can do for God. The gospel is about what God has already done in the person of his son to accomplish an eternal redemption which has set the stage for men and women to escape his holy... I'm happy about it. I'm here to tell you I'm happy about it. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption, through the redemption that is where? In Christ. That's the message we preach. We preach Christ and him crucified. We preach it as the grounds of cleansing your conscience. We preach it as the source of heaven bringing it to you and to you, to me in the person of Christ at the end of what I call that replication of faith. What is the replication of faith? From faith to faith to faith to faith to faith. From the first believer to the second believer to the third believer to the emptieth believer to me, to you, and hopefully from you to somebody else. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Did y'all get that? The way the world will know about God's righteousness in Christ is for you to tell them about it. That's how they're going to know. This is how you have people come to the water. Am I making some sense? John the Baptist led this thing off at the beginning of the final stages of the Old Testament when he was called to baptize men and women at the River Jordan. And they were coming out in the thousands, weren't they? How come, pastor? Because the Holy Ghost was drawing them. Because the word of the prophets was drilling down in their soul. Because they knew they were guilty. They knew that they they needed a savior. This is why the whole message of the word of God got to be preached. Guilty first. Guilty first. Guilty first. Those people came running down to the water, did they not? And John said, now y'all can come, come on. We're going to have some sisters get baptized in a minute. And all we're going to do, as John did, is baptize them in some water. Now, John says, I baptize you with water. But there's another coming right behind me. He's on his way. He's going to be here in a few minutes. Who shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Him you must hear. Him you must hear. But what a joyful thing when the soul is moved to confess their sins in the water of baptism and let the world know. Listen, let the world know I heard that gospel. I heard that gospel. Listen to me. This is why this is why John said, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Did y'all get that? Sinners running to this water are indicating that they heard God. Lord, if that's the way out, I'm headed there. Point number two, briefly, point number two in our outline. They reject the evidence of God and his right to judge them. Look back at Romans 1, and 23. Romans 1, and 23. But because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were they what? I'm going to come back on that next week. I'm going to come back on that because this is where you and I join lost, hell-bound sinners. I'm talking about as children of the living God. I'm coming back next week on that. I'm going to tell you, you need to be more thankful. I'm coming back. I'm letting you know you and I are just like the sinner that doesn't know God a lot of times in our attitude. I'm coming back. God doesn't expect anybody to thank him but redeem sinners. 
I'm coming back. I'm coming back to tell you that your heart should be full of thanksgiving. From your lips should flow the praises of God from the morning to the noontime to the evening. My soul shall rejoice in the Lord my God. With my lips will I praise him all the day long. Oh, my soul, bless the Lord and all that with is in me, bless his holy name. I don't care what the world says. God has been good to me. So I'm going to come back on that because there's something actually profoundly therapeutic when you obey God in the context of Thanksgiving. There are a lot of snares in your life, a lot of snares in your life. And most of them are strong cords that keep you in your iniquity because you are not thanking God for all the other stuff that God has done for you. I'll leave that there till next week. Listen to it, because when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were they thankful, but became vain in their what? Lift that, lift that clause out, because that's the work we're going into next week, but became vain in their imagination. You're looking right now at a verse that's dealing with a sort of neo-mRNA technology changing you at the genetic level in your psyche. You are now moving from thinking like God to thinking like animals because some kind of faulty jab has poked you in your cerebral brain and now you're being transformed into some kind of animal. Am I making some sense? It's really true. This battle is a battle of the mind. It really is. Ask Eve. Ask Adam. At this proverbial jab that Satan used to get at her, she was immediately changed. Her thinking got completely turned around. Her mind got shifted and she leaned into disobedience to the true and the living God. And she committed and Adam committed what Paul is about to argue now that we have all done. Because we have had a mind altering experience we exchange the true and the living God for a lie. That's where we all are right now. Y'all got that? Keeping up with me? For silly people who don't think I'm telling the truth about what's going on, read your Bible. God warns you about it as the first strategy by the devil in Genesis 3. You can have things that will radically change who you are in your personality, in your attitude, in your behavior, in your conviction. And the evidence is coming in every day that people are growing more and more ignorant, naive and compliant. And this is not by accident. Did y'all hear what I just stated? This is not by accident. And you're supposed to be, as a child of God, defiant. You're supposed to be logical, rational, objective, critical in your analysis, thinking in a way that when no matter what the powers in the world be, you go, oh, oh, that don't line up with scripture. Let me go on. So your sub point, your sub point is Adam and his seed are in constant what? Replay. This is what we call the recapitulation principle in the Bible. I'm going to do a little bit more theology. I'll be out of here in a moment. So if y'all can put up with it, I'm going to do a little bit more theology. Okay. I know you don't come to church for that, but we're going to do some more theology. So when I stated that when the gospel works right in us, we become a replicational mechanism for God to transfer faith to faith to faith to faith. Y'all got that? Right. The enemy does the same thing when he inseminates us with his false gospel. 
It brings you into his kingdom. You receive his program and then you pass that on to your own lineage from seed to seed to seed to seed. Hence, Cain had the seed of the wicked one in him. So he killed Abel. And after that, we move into the whole Genesis 6 narrative where violence and murder is going on. What's happening? It's a replication of the evil seed. So what's going on in your world and mine are two kinds of seed, the godly seed and the ungodly seed, the replication unto death and the replication unto life. Am I making it clear, saints? The battle that you and I are fighting is inferring, inferring that your mind can be brought into captivity by an alien power and the whole of your being can be seized and controlled outside of you. Hence predictive programming. Hence the zombie theory. People don't even know why they do what they do. Raise your hand if you're bearing record with me. See, half the people don't even get it. Half the people don't even get it. And God has told us this is the battle. This is why Paul, Peter told you, gird up the loins of your mind. Gird up the loins of your mind. The battle is this is why when Paul said in Ephesians chapter six that you and I are to put on the whole armor of God. That's what he says. But do you know the panoply? Can you quote it by heart? Do you know what it means to put on the armor? A soldier is not fit to fight a battle if he does not know his panoply. See what I'm getting at? I'll leave it right there. I'm wondering if I could look. I can't. I'm going to be honest with you so you can relax. I cannot see into the spiritual dimension. I don't even know if you even have one piece of the planophy with you in this room today. It's possible you didn't bring any. It's possible you don't have a helmet. You don't have a breastplate. You don't have a girdle. You don't have your loins girded about. You don't have the preparation of the gospel on your feet, which will show up in your lips. You don't have the sword of the living God by which you can wage battle against every apologetic lie. You don't have the shield of faith and you don't have that ultimate weapon that consummates all of them. Prayer and all perseverance. There ain't no way you win in a battle if you're walking out in the battlefield butt naked without the armor of God. It's not happening. It's not happening. They became vain in their imagination. Their foolish hearts were what? There it is. You know we're walking in some crazy stuff. Let me keep going. I only got about 15 minutes before we deal with our sisters. Point number three, they suppress this reality on their mind. Now, now, now I just want you to see it. We're going to come back and drill down into it. Notice what the Apostle Paul says over in verse 28. And even as they did not like to retain God in their what? Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. Do you know that this is describing my generation to a T? When you read material, books, curriculums, syllabuses, when you read, read all of the material everywhere in all of the systems, in all of the structures, in all of the businesses, in all of the schools today, God is gone. Am I telling the truth? And we're used to it. We're so used to not seeing God in the equation. Long, long, long ago, some 20 trillion years. 
when the earth was just a blob. And the acids began to move and boil. We didn't know if life could create itself. But over time, maybe hundreds of trillions, that's a long time back. See, we can't go back that far to check you out. The story sounds fascinating. But only children will buy it because of how fascinating the fantasy is. But you, Christian, couldn't refute it to save your life. That's how ignorant we are today. Am I making some sense? I mean, you know, sometimes I have to go, man, maybe Darwin got that little piece right about the baboon. Maybe he got that right, because we act sometimes like pro-magnum man. Neanderthal man. Sometimes we act. Here they go, mm, 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 I'm sorry you do. I'm sorry you do. See, I'm just being honest. See, I'm being honest. I know that because of the way God created us, the narrow parameters between each creature and the similarities and overlaps we have, when you take certain things out of the mind, we can easily behave like Homo sapien or like those mammal animals out there, much more like gorillas. Look at them. And yet the Bible tells us we're created in God's image, did it not? So just a few brain cells different. It's the difference between regeneration and degeneration that will have you expressing in your phenotypical out- outlook like an animal versus God. See, I don't care what you say. Listen to it. Psalm 49 will lay this out very clearly to us. The psalmist lays this argument out to us in Psalm chapter 49 about how you and I behave. The psalmist uh, laid it out somewhere around verse 13 where the psalmist lays out for us, man being in honor abideth not. He is like the beast that perishes. Okay, and it's very important for you and I to know that. There it is. Boy, I'm verse 12. I'm getting good. Nevertheless, man, do you see it? Being where? This is the text that Paul is talking about. Jesse, hurry up and get done. This is a text that Paul is talking about. This is called the descent of mankind in his fall from God. This is the text he's talking about. In theology, we use this term called the noetic effect of sins. The people at Grace have heard it for thousands of years here with me. Forever, I've been using that term, N-O-E-T-I-C, noetic. It is a derivative of the word of the term noose, from which we have another derivative called uh, nuthetics, from which we use it as a mechanism for teaching biblical counsel. Have you heard the term nuthetics? Ooh, boy, we in bad shape at Grace. Nuthetics is biblical counseling. It's helping people through the precepts of scripture to figure out how they're thinking and why things go wrong in their life. Jay Adams was one of the founders of biblical nuthetics. Nuthetic is a Greek term that says that a lot of our problems are solved when we learn how to think properly. Am I making some sense? In addition to that, we can know, therefore, that a lot of our problems are incurred when we think wrongly. The goal of the enemy is to get you to think wrongly. You and I will be conformed to the image of whatever it is that's in our face talking to us all the time. That's Psalm 115. 
All the idols of the, all of the gods of the heathen are pagan idols. They can't see, smell, they can't talk, they can't do good or do evil. Have y'all ever heard that? They're called idols. And then guess what the psalmist says? And those that worship them are just like them. What does that mean, pastor? Human beings that can't see, can't discern, can't speak, can't stand, can't do anything because they're not being transformed into the image of the true and the living God who is infinitely wise, all-powerful, all-loving, and gracious, and he alone gives us the quality to think right. Am I helping you? So a lot of times what you're doing when you you hang out with your partners or your girlfriends and you, you see, you sense the void. You sense the void. You sense the void. You go, right, am I in the twilight zone? Do, 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 do. You sense the void. That's because they've been sitting in front of that one-eyed devil so long that it has constantly deleted any kind of real brain matter out of them. And now they're walking zombies. Just repeating what's printed up and forced into them at the programmatic level. I'm making some sense. Here's what he says. Nevertheless, man being in honor does not abide. He is like the beast that is what? God didn't create us to be like that. That's called a descent, not an ascent. He's created us to ascend. He's created us for glory, for heaven. That also means he's created us to think well. Because in thinking right, you make right choices. In thinking wrong, you make wrong choices. Somebody say amen to that because that makes sense. All right, let me get done here. Notice point number three. They suppress this reality in their mind. And this is where we go back to verse 18. I just want to touch on this a moment. I'm closing. Romans chapter one, verse 18. Notice what the apostle says. He says, for the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Two categories, two adjectival expressions, ungodliness and unrighteousness. Unpacking next week who are constantly holding down the truth in unrighteousness, who are constantly suppressing the truth so that it doesn't have free discourse. I want you to get the picture just so you can get this. It's like, a, I've used this analogy before. This is a big old uh, water balloon. You know how you play with the big balloons in the water and you try to take it and push it under the water. You know how hard that is? And the balloon is doing all this? This is what the human race is doing. And every now and then the balloon pops up. That's truth. You can't always hold the truth down. It's going to pop up at some point and call you out on your lie. That's the battle we're fighting. That's the battle we're fighting. That's the battle we're fighting. And it's a perpetual conflict between the mind that would not retain God in their knowledge Therefore, God gave them over. Y'all see that? All right, so two actions here. I'm going to deal with two actions. I'm closing because we got to do baptism. This here, in, in Romans chapter one, Paul is using two verbs to argue for two responses. One is mankind's response to God is to say no to God. And by saying no to God, he is constantly but unsuccessfully pressing the truth down. That's his labor. That's called believing a lie. Y'all got that? Suppressing the truth. That's verse 22 and verse 23 in your outline. 
as they're going up. Notice what it says. I'm starting at verse 22. Professing themselves to be wise, they became what? Right. That the fool has said in his heart, what? Right. So the fundamental predisposition of these individuals is to say no to the reality of objective truth and God. Verse 23. And therefore they what? Exchanged is the term. Replaced the glory of the uncorruptible God. Now that is a presupposition on its own, right? One, there's a God. Secondly, he's uncorruptible. Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness, I'm sorry, verse 22, and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like unto what? Whoa, what a change. Whoa, what a change. God helped somebody. Here it is. God was the one on the throne. He was the center of our consciousness. He's the center of our revelation. He's the ground of our hope. He's the one we call on. And one day, God's down and man is up. Man now is on the center of the throne. He's the big kahuna. He's the one talking to you all the time. He's the one with his face everywhere on all of the big images. Out of his mouth comes his doctrine. And the men and women that keep their face towards his faith are being changed into his image every day so that your little replications of the big man God that's dominating the media, dominating all discourse, dominating all educational systems, dominating every method of communication. Am I making some sense? That's why I was saying earlier, when I look at my world, there's so much to talk about out of Romans chapter one. Now, remember, I'm just giving you a framing. I haven't even gone in yet. I'm just giving you a framing because Romans one tells it all. We exchange God for man, birds of the air, four-footed beasts, and creeping things. So the hierarchy of our revelation and our hope is a man-centered hope with the animals helping man. Now, next week, I'm going to show you how we're going to squeeze them all together, and they're going to be one monstrosity in a hybrid of species which is devolution called transhumanism. That's what you and I are today. Ah, Pastor, you don't know what you're talking about. I do. I do. Because of our capacity to manipulate technology and science, and God has already warned us, this is where we are. I do, I promise you, we're going to deal with it. So you know what the text says? They exchanged God. They gave God up. And you know what the text tells us? God gave them over. We give God up and God gives us over. Two verbs. One means to release. The other one means to transfer. I'm just telling you what it is. I'm going to stop. Did I preach the gospel to you today? Did I preach the gospel? Okay. I just want to know. I just want to know because I'm, I'm ending on a blues note right here. This is a blues note. This is not celebration. This is a blues note. And we have to pick up so we can get into some passing chords and resolve this thing in a much more positive major chord conclusion. He gave them over. He gave them, it was called a rate of exchange. That's paradidomai. So the inference is that God had us and because we rebelled against him, he gave us over to another authority. 
In other words, he didn't let us go. We let God go. He gave us over to another authority. He gave us over to the authority we asked for. The whole world lies in the lap of the wicked one. And if you would listen to God, listen to God as he describes how the devil works, you can see it in the world. This thing is so explicit. This this thing is so clear. Y'all get y'all with me? It's so vividly clear that that prophet Cat Williams has already told you everything's being exposed in 2024. And Denzel Washington, the other prophet, told you you ain't got but 30 minutes to get out. That'll come home in a minute. These are people that are steeped in the transformational mechanism at the entertainment level telling you that's how the devil changes the world. And if you don't want to listen to the word of God, you ought to listen to them because they know what's going on. And while you're bobbing your head up and down right now in front of me, people you love and care about are being transformed into that image right now. Now, when I come back next week, we're going to talk about all of the crazy stuff. Romans 1 said would happen. And today it's happening exponentially from our government to our Department of Defense, all the way down through our educational systems, entertainment systems, everywhere. This thing is showing up. Now, the question is, are you going to close your eyes and pretend that it doesn't exist? Or are you going to listen to the prophets? Sometimes God has to let the secular prophets tell you because you're too far away from this kind of like most folk don't go to these kind of churches. First of all, I preach too long. The, the, the real key, the real key to that, that never has ever bothered me one time. And I'll tell you why. It's not because I like to hear my voice. We are so we are so um, we are so shallow when it comes to the value of preaching. So shallow. It's not because I like to hear my voice. When I preach, I preach to an audience of one. And that's God. And so far, he hasn't told me that he's fallen asleep in my services or that he left after 45 minutes. So as long as I'm preaching to God, y'all can come and go whenever you want to because I got to deal with him when I'm done with you. 